well, well delivered. Okay, I've got, I've got a few note scratchings at the top of my uh, manuscript here, just so I don't forget some things I found out this morning that I just have to mention. I guess the first of which is, um, so my old pastor for a number of years and his wife, John and Debbie Crimmins, are here. I just walked in behind them after leaving the restroom. I said, I know the back of that head anywhere. They're in from Africa. They're uh, workers for Christ now in Africa. John's training pastors over there, and I'm uh, just so, so glad to see you. It's such a great surprise. Welcome in Christ's name. Like, welcome to your family here in Houston that you didn't know much about, but we're really glad to have you, and we're glad to have all of you. I see some new faces, and glad to have new members, I mean, covenant members as well, um, into this family, and anyway, so glad you're here, John and Debbie, and please, th- those are they right there on the on the end. They're not millennials. That's, that pretty much narrows it down right there. Okay, it's the not millennials couple, so... <laughs> So say hi to them afterwards and welcome them in Christ's name and in, in the name of, of, of our Sojourn family. Um, also, I wanted to say Michelle, who's a covenant member here, Michelle Williams, and just a dear friend, and, and she's, a, she's an original, uh, you know, part of the party of 15 that came and rooted here and that felt called here. And she, uh, she told me this morning by the donut table that today, December 11th, is her five-year spiritual birthday, um, which is just awesome. Number one, yeah, give her, give her a hand. I mean, give Christ a hand. So good. But check this out. Okay, so that's fantastic. It's such good news. It just reminds us of why we're here. But also, um, I, it, this is hard to believe. But Michelle is not one to say, no, the fish was this big when it was really, I mean, she does not, she's an accountant. She's on our finance team. She, she keeps it, she keeps me in check. I'm getting no's from her constantly. That's too much, Taylor. Um, she says that five years ago, Correct me if I'm wrong. Give me a nod. Five years ago today, on her spiritual birthday, this same text that I'm about to preach on, Joseph, Matthew 1, uh, 18 through 25, was being preached. That's crazy. That's amazing. That's like the Lord just, I don't know, just saying, blessings, happy spiritual birthday. That's so cool. Just to be reminded, I call those little love letters from God, just little reminders, things that are too crazy to be coincidental, just reminders that God is in control in his good providence, sort of like Chris was saying, even if we feel all alone, no matter what we're going through, just little reminders that all the time, in every single thing, God is in control. And sometimes he makes it so obvious, even with the little details. So that's wonderful. Congrats. Um, Praise God. And then lastly, before I jump in here to a sermon on Joseph the Just, David Baker. Where is is Dave? There he is, front row. (laughs) So close, I couldn't even see you. Right under my nose. David Baker, who is soon to become a covenant member, keeps asking me. He works on Saturdays, so he's, we have our covenant member classes on Saturdays. He's like, when can, I, when can I have a special class so I can join? So we'll make it happen, man. But he plays percussion for us. He's a faithful member here, a member of this family. We love you so much. We appreciate you so much. Yesterday was your birthday, like your biological birthday. You turned 24, so you're close to a quarter century. But it was also eight years to the day uh, anniversary yesterday, again, of brain surgery that he had that would likely would have, should have killed him. Best case scenario, in the words of one of three people, I think, in, in the United States who can do the kind of surgery that was done on David's brain, um, he said, you could well die, this could be it for you. Best case scenario, you will absolutely, if you survive, you won't be able to walk, talk, um, and David said, what'd you say? 
good luck, go get them. <laughs> Something more clever than that. <laughs> Your final words. I mean, so walking miracle, we all are, but David's just an extra reminder of God's grace and of, and of how he healed David and guided the surgeon's hands, Dr. Chan, eight years ago. And David also asked, a little extra something, God, if you could just do that whole thing, like make me live and have this miraculous surgery, but also if it could snow. And that night, it snowed huge flakes of snow. Um, and the doctor burst out of the operating room after, I don't know, 12-hour surgery or 12-hour-plus surgery. And he's not a believer. He's like a, at least an agnostic. He burst out and said, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. David's not only, he's talking. He's not walking yet, but he's talking. He's, he's sentient. He's coherent. Um, and it was also snowing. So just a wonderful reminder, first of all, celebrating you, but also just of life. Of, of biological life, but of life in Christ and um, just of the gift that it is. So, all right. So that's, we've probably had more announcements total today than in the past three or four Sundays. So, but it's all good stuff. It all has to be recognized, I think. Um, let's jump in briefly to uh, this text, this really beautiful, fairly short text. I'm really just going to focus in on Joseph. I just want to talk for a bit about Joseph the Just, Jesus' adopted father, here in the second sermon of Advent. There's lots that's said about Jesus as Emmanuel and fulfillment of the scriptures, God with us. He's both God and man. His name is Jesus, which means God or Yahweh saves. Um, but I'm going to focus in on Joseph, his, the father that Jesus chose for himself before coming to earth through Mary alone. Uh, his adoptive but also adopted father. There's not much said in the scriptures about Joseph, so it's really tantalizing the bit that we get. So I just want to hone in on a few things that Matthew says there that really give us a lot of insight into the type of person Jesus chose for his father. And I think that's a model for us. First of all, Joseph was a man of just, as a just man, he was a man of just action. Um, he and Mary were betrothed to be married which was something you really couldn't back out of. It was, they weren't married yet. They hadn't consummated sexually, but they were locked in. Um, and so it was legally as if they were married. And then she comes, what, verse 18, she comes with child, and he knows it. And it wasn't him. And we're told, what, in verse 18, that it was the Holy Spirit. But that's the narrator telling the reader, not Joseph. Joseph doesn't know she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit of the living God. He's thinking somebody else walking around with two feet is her daddy. Of course. Right? Until he gets the stream. So he's thinking, okay, my soon-to-be wife with whom I've been faithful, chaste, we haven't consummated, she's pregnant. Wow. Here's what he does. Verse 19. Her husband Joseph, being a just man, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, Resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, the fact that Matthew calls Joseph, he doesn't choose many words, just a few to describe this man, but he chooses the word just. He's a just man. It's the word uh, dikaios in the Greek, and it means it's also translated often righteous. He's a righteous man. He's a just man. Um, and then he goes on to say, that being the case, he resolved to divorce her quietly. It's interesting that, that Matthew chooses this word because it's applied in the Jewish context, which Matthew is writing. He was a Jew writing to Jews, primarily. Um, in this context, just meant he's an adherent, he's a scrupulous adherent of the Old Testament law of God, to the Torah. 
okay? He keeps the law of God because he fears God, and he fears his word, and he lives his life according to God's word, which is life itself. It's, it's pathway to life. Um, so the just teacher, for instance, has no favorites but treats all the same according to the rules of the school. So you live according to what the law says. And Ken Bailey writes this, the book of Deuteronomy, the Old Testament law or Torah, states, it's in the Old Testament, okay, Deuteronomy, it's in the law. It states that if a betrothed virgin meets a man in the city and lies with him, the two of them are to be stoned. Lie, not lies down, but has, that's a euphemism, right, uh, for, for um, have sex with, okay? So I was trying, how do I say this euphemistically? Okay, I'm just going to say it. Okay, Deuteronomy 22, 23. But Matthew, what, 18 and 19 affirms that because Joseph was just, he decided to break the law of Moses and divorce Mary quietly rather than publicly exposing her, um, rather than having her stoned according to the letter of the law, or even if he'd shown mercy, letting everyone know, hey, I didn't do this, and she would have been publicly shamed and ruined at the very least, but he decides to cover over it, to dismiss her, divorce her quietly. Um, such a bold act, Bailey says, invites serious reflection, invites serious reflection. And you know, I think that it shows us that at the very least, um, Joseph understood more than just looking at the exact letter of the law and saying, well, I've got I've to obey that. He understood as well being guided by the word of God in toto, he understood the spirit, to sort of use a, a Montesquieuian phrase, he understood the spirit of the law and its marrow and, the, and what it shows us about God's heart. And what is, I mean, the warp and woof of the law, the, literally what the law is built around is the system of sacrifices, as scholars would say, the cult, the cultists. Um, the law was never just given as do this, do this, do this. It was do this, and when you break these laws, there's this, sacrificial system that's literally at the heart of everything I've given to you that will allow you to live in my presence. It means that something innocent that doesn't deserve to die is killed in your place, the place of the guilty, so that you can go free, so you can live in my presence. But keep my law. It is the path to life. And so Joseph understood that there was a system of sacrifice. In other words, there was a provision for mercy, for compassion, and for God's work, the work of the innocent on our behalf, that was given with the letter of the law. Um, and so he was a man of the word, guided by the word of God, which led him to what Matthew describes, surprisingly, as a just action, even though Joseph didn't have Mary stoned. Again, thinking that she was pregnant by another man, which she wasn't. Um, thank God for that. Because of that, um, if he had not decided that um, and acted justly, then Jesus wouldn't have been born, but would have died in Mary's womb as she was, as I said, stoned to death by the law's letter, satisfying apparent but not actual justice. Uh, another commentator says this, for Joseph and for Matthew, perhaps being just included an element of mercy. So that's the first thing that Joseph shows us as he embraces through action this total idea of justice that's given to us, I think, by God's word in the Old Testament. So he, 
another way, another kind of cool insight that I don't know if this is true or not, it's speculation, but Ken Bailey also talks about how the idea that we're told that um, Joseph takes Mary with him from Nazareth, the hills in Galilee near the Sea of, Caper- um, of, of Galilee, down south to Jerusalem for the census to be registered there because his forebearer, David, is fr- was born in Bethlehem, so he had to go back to that city to register for the census. Um, maybe Joseph, I've always thought, you know, Joseph just took her because she was pregnant and she's going to have a baby, so you take your wife to be with you, you know. Um, but Bailey suggests another reason. He says, in the Middle East, Ken Bailey grew up in the Middle East, and he, he's a polyglot. He reads languages, ancient Near Eastern languages, like Syriac, for instance, um, and Arabic that a lot of even Old Testament scholars can't, can't touch. He says, in the Middle East, but he understands the culture too. Men usually represent their families in any official or legal matters. Why did Joseph take Mary with him to Bethlehem for the registration, the census? The easiest explanation is that he was unsure what might happen to her if he left her in Nazareth without his presence to protect her. In other words, he might have taken Mary with him to Bethlehem on that perilous journey where she's majorly with child. Not, not the smartest thing necessarily to do with this eight-and-a-half-month pregnant woman. He might have taken her with him for fear of what would happen to her if he'd left her there. In other words, they might have just taken her out and stoned her according to the law. Um, so he's a just man um, of action. But also he's a man of just, not just action, but a man of just feeling. Okay, verse 20 says, but as what? As he considered these things. As he considered these things. So he's thinking about, okay, this is before the revelation, right? He's thinking, okay, Mary's gotten pregnant by, put yourself in his shoes. My wife-to-be, whom I've saved myself, to whom I've pledged myself, has gotten pregnant by another man. Okay, that's where he is right now. He weighed them. He pondered them. Rather than burning up and making a rash decision, a decision that would have been um, by justified feelings, he pulled back, right, is what the text tells us. He reflected. He considered. He was thoughtful. Um, he didn't let his burning feelings direct and drive his decision, but he considered. Um, we ought to let emotions color, I think, if we look at Joseph as an example, color but not drive our consideration. On the contrary, thoughtful consideration of God's word mixed with compassion and mercy ought to restrain, direct, and govern our emotions, what we feel so passionately. Let, letting God's word, pulling back and considering it in light of justice and mercy, in light of what God has done for us through Christ, drive and, and shape and reshape what we feel. But the word considered, it may convey a stronger emotion. Um, the primary meaning is to consider, obviously, but as the ESV translates it, but there is a secondary meaning, Oxford Dictionary 1966, Little and Scott, uh, Greek-English, gives the secondary meaning as to to become angry. To become angry. Uh, Kittle, a German commentator on every Greek word in the New Testament, citing the classical Greek physician Hippocrates to find out other meanings of the word, you know, a wider range than just the New Testament. Looks at the corpus of the the ancient Greek canon. He finds Hippocrates using it this way, um, to be in a passionate mood. Hmm? The word that's translated, Joseph considered these things, Hippocrates says, it also can mean uh, to be in a passionate mood, hence to take something to heart, whether badly, as used by Aeschylus uh, in the Eumenides, part of the uh, 
part of his trilogy, or to ponder, as it seems to mean here and is translated by most. The oldest, again, Bailey, Bailey, the guy I mentioned earlier, he reads Arabic. So the oldest Arabic translation, however, of this text, 8th century or earlier, reads, while he was disturbed over this matter. I'm taking you, it's, it's a secondary meaning. This is tentative, okay? So I'm, I'm giving you some more evidence than I normally do. Um, the root of this word is thymos, and it's used once in the Gospels in Luke 4.28 to mean wrath. And the only verbal use of thymos um, in the entire New Testament, it's found in the story of the wise men, where Herod is in a rage at finding out that the wise men have betrayed him, not followed his orders, and left, not to going back to Jerusalem, but leaving to go back to their hometown, um, because, they didn't, because they were warned in a dream not to go back and tell Herod where baby Jesus was. Um, so it's used of his rage. In short, Bailey says, this word may mean something like, or at least have this sort of meaning in the background, okay? A word can, it's, a word can be polyvalent. A word can be pregnant. A word can um, have a wide range. It can be thick of meanings, and not, we don't necessarily always have to land on one. Yes, the primary meaning can be Joseph considered these things, but in the background even, Bailey says, but as he fumed over these things. Now, that's not too hard to imagine, is it? Knowing what Joseph knows at this point. It, this fuming would make total sense here. Joseph was human, and he was a just human. And this emotion reflects his justice and his humanity. Um, to be a husband who has found out that your wife, as far as he knows, has cheated on you at any point, before, certainly before you've consummated the marriage, if it doesn't affect you, if you don't become angry, there's something wrong with you. Either, either you're checked out or you're perverse. So this actually shows if indeed this is what's happening with Joseph as he wrestles with this, as he's angry over what he's found out, it shows his righteousness, it confirms his justice. To absorb shame or sin of another that we have decided to cover over. In the Hebrew, the word cover or atone rather, kafar, means to cover. To cover over someone's shame or something they've done that shames them is to absorb that harmful impact into yourself because it doesn't just dissipate it doesn't just go up into thin air if someone ought to receive shame for what they've done and you chose choose to cover over it as joseph has cho chosen to done to do excuse me um he is choosing to absorb that impact that shame the consequences for mary's sin into himself by dismissing her quietly rather than exposing what she's done what he thinks she's done um when we absorb someone's shame, when we choose to cover over their sin, um, we will be affected. We will suffer so they don't have to as much. Um, and this fuming, if indeed Joseph is fuming, and I can't imagine he wasn't furious, is part of Joseph's suffering in, her, in Mary's place. Um, but Again, to take you back to where we were, Joseph's righteous fuming is informed by the truth of God's word. He allows God's word to reshape his emotions and his actions. He acts on God's word, not his feelings, and not even his rationale. Okay, he's not even trusting what he's understanding. He's submitting that to God's heart and character as revealed through God's word. Um, and eventually, God's word, through a vision, through angels, redirects and reforms Joseph's reason and his feeling. He submits mind and feeling to that word, and truth and justice and our salvation and the restoration of all creation are the result 
of Joseph's submission. It's a model for us, guys. We need to submit what we think we know is truth and what we feel so passionately and so deeply, that fire burning in us, right, um, to God's word as illumined by his Holy Spirit. Um, and in our case, we need to do that within a community of believers, spending time in his word ourselves, but also doing it within a community where, where we can get to a right understanding of God's word together, or submitting ourselves to the Lord and to one another. And our, and our reading of God's word through his Holy Spirit um, within that community is the best way to do it. Um, okay, lesson. Justice means processing our anger into grace, as Joseph did. In our case, in light of God's grace, it's manifest in the gospel, what Jesus has done for us through no good of our own. So G- Joseph was a man of just action. He was also a man of just feeling. I want to I continue with that man of just feeling vein just for a little bit. Um, he was a man of just feeling. Verse 19, so he decided to put her away quietly, and it says this too, and being unwilling to put her to shame. That really caught me as I was looking over the text. Joseph was unwilling to put Mary to shame, even though, again, still thinking she's gotten pregnant by another man. He had every right to do that, even according to the law and more. But he was thinking not about himself. I would have been thinking, what would my, my natural, what would your natural tendency have been in that situation? It would have been to be, I can't believe I've hooked my wagon to this woman. Man, she, she's just ruined everything. I would be thinking all about me, all about my humiliation and my shame. But the text says he was unwilling to put her to shame. He was thinking, Joseph was thinking about Mary. That is, that is amazingly impressive. The word there, put her to shame, it means to disgrace, to make an example of, to make a show of. And this is an honor-shame culture, and the Middle East is still this way. We, we're a guilt-innocence culture. Um, in our culture, our most valuable possessions are, our most valuable, uh, sorry, our possessions are our most valuable possession, really. We're a materialistic culture. In the ancient Near East, your reputation was everything. It was your most valuable possession. So at the very least, like I said, if, if he had... If he had even just publicly exposed her and not chosen to have her stoned, it would have just ruined. It would have absolutely ruined her. She wouldn't have been able to employ herself. Um, she wouldn't have been able to, to attach herself to a husband to get married. Her family could have well disowned her. It would have ruined her life. Um, in not seeking to shame Mary, again, Joseph had to absorb that shame. And, and rest assured, just to chase this rabbit down a little more, rest assured Joseph did absorb this shame probably for the rest of his life. There are bits in the Gospels where the Pharisees say things like, uh, we, weren't, we weren't born of sin. We weren't born of a, of a tramp like you were. That's what they're probably implying. In a, born into a small community like that, people can count to nine months. They can count to nine months. They know, they kn- and people would have known, okay, Jesus was born with, you know, quicker than the nine months that it was after Joseph and Mary actually got married and consummated, okay? So they, they would have been able to figure that out. And so in this small community, it's not like he lived in Houston. He lived in the hills, in the sticks. So people would have known them intimately, and they would have known the timeline. And Joseph would have had to absorb the idea that, yeah, I got married to a woman that got pregnant before we consummated. Um, he had to absorb that shame for her perceived but not actual sin because God 
impregnated Mary. The Holy Spirit came upon her, and God was the father of Jesus um, and Mary, his mother, fully God and fully man to save us from our sins. Um, so thank God for just Joseph. Um, we see the fatherhood, the adoptive fatherhood of Joseph, Joseph who raised Jesus, who taught him how his trade, no doubt, how to be a carpenter and, and let him apprentice and, and taught him most of what he knew um, and loved him and loved Mary and loved Jesus' other siblings. Um, sorry, Roman Catholics, but uh, I do believe that Jesus had brothers and sisters, as the text clearly tells us elsewhere in the Gospels. Um, Jesus would have picked up a lot from his adoptive father. So we, we see this, um, Joseph's just actions and feelings reflected in Jesus' teaching. In the parable of the great banquet in Luke 14, um, there's a great man that offers a bank, has a banquet and, and just extends the invite to all his friends, and all of his friends give excuses for why they can't come. In other words, I mean, do you ever do that? You ever put on a party and everybody just says, sorry, I can't come, I'm washing my hair, sorry, I can't come, I've got, I'm, I've got a movie tonight, or, you know, I'm doing this or that, I'm washing my car, I don't know, um, just nobody comes. It's shameful. It's, it's, you just realize, okay, everybody has better stuff to do. Um, so he's shamed amongst his community, this, this great man. And instead of responding in anger, he, he responds graciously and extends the invitation to just anybody who will come. Bring them in. Just bring anyone. Let's fill the house. And that sort of responding to being shamed with grace and largesse is reflected as Jesus teaches this parable. Um, the parable of the murderous tenants, where a guy owns land, and he has tenants work the land, and then he sends a servant, and then another servant, and then another servant to go, and just to get, he goes away for a while, and his tenants are working the land for themselves, but also he has a right to, to require some of the fruit from that property, some of the harvest, and he sends his servants to get some of that harvest for himself, and they're beaten. One of them's beaten by the tenants, and they're thrown out, even though the tenants are just renting this master's land. And then some of the, some of the servants are killed. And rather than uh, responding in anger and crushing them, God is, God is the owner. And the tenants are many of the Jews, many of the people in, of his day who are rejecting Jesus. He sends his own son, whom they then kill. They've killed servants. They've tortured servants. They then torture and kill his son. And he uses that to save them. It's the first thing that Peter preaches in the first church sermon in Acts 2 is, you crucified Christ. You were there. You saw it. You wagged your head. You ordered it. You had it done. And he doesn't say, damn you, go to hell. To us either. He says, therefore, knowing what you've done, turn now. Own your sin and know that God, through your sin, has provided a sacrifice justly paid for your sin and opened a, a gateway, a wide open door to the Father. Believe on Jesus, the one whom you crucified and be saved. This is in, it's in the heart of Jesus' teaching and it's also, as I've just hit on, it's in the heart of why he came. God and man. This is who Jesus is. Who better absorbs our shame than Jesus Christ? Um, again, like I said, Shame from sin doesn't just dissipate. We treat it like it magically disappears. But God is just. And, and because he is just, sin has to be paid for. And sin 
ought to produce shame. It, somebody's got to pay for it. And if, and if we have shame, and if, and if we stand before God on that final day, and we own our sin, as we will, if we're not in Christ, then we will be shamed. We will have to carry that shame with us. Um, it can't just be magically uh, lifted. But Christ came in order to bear our shame for us, in order to pay for it, in order to be shamed in our place, so that when we look to him and believe on him and say, you got what I deserve, he lifts our shame by paying for it, and he sets us free. It's said of the Messiah that he will be a lifter of heads. You know, when I was, um, I was in a, a hospital in Charlotte, North Carolina, doing some sort of chaplaincy duty in seminary, I went to seminary in North Carolina, and uh, I was in, I, I met with a man, it was late at night, I had like the midnight to six, you know, the graveyard shift, and there was a man in there who was just a wasteoid, I mean, he, he was, you know, upper middle class guy, uh, doing great, but then started cheating on his wife, and literally, I remember he told me the whole story, he, uh, he committed adultery, went outside after the affair, right after the affair, walked outside like in his boxers and just roused all over the grass because he was so sick to his stomach. So much, he was so ashamed and revolted at what he'd done. And he stayed there. And he was, man, he was in that unit because he was on suicide watch. He, was, he, was, he had tried to take his life. I think his wife committed him. He was there wanting to die. And he would not look at me. The whole time his eyes were just down. It was just him and me in this little room, this little white room with a few chairs. He was on one side and I was on the other. And man, he would not, his, he was downcast. And man, we prayed, I shared the gospel with him and he said, I, wanna, I want that. And we prayed for him to receive Jesus and he prayed that prayer and said, Lord, I'm a sinner. You took my place. You took my shame. You took my sin, I believe. Man, he opened his eyes up and homie was like, it was almost like he was off the floor. He was it's almost like he, not only was he looking me straight in the face, it was like he had this million-watt candlelight thing just, just beaming out of his eyes. But it was almost like he was levitating. He just walked out of there just sort of like floating. And uh, God, what had happened there? Was it magic? No, a real transaction had taken place. Jesus took his shame, paid the price for his shame. Um, and would that we could be, first of all, if you know that, own it. Believe it. Stop carrying shame around. If you are in Christ and you have looked to him to save you, give that to him because he's already paid for it. Don't do double jeopardy. He's already paid for it on the cross. Give it to him and say, Lord, I'm free of it. Sorrow, sorrow over sin that causes us to flee to him? Yes, absolutely. But shame, being weighed down, that's a form of feeling like you have to pay for what's already been paid for. And if you don't know what that's like, yes, you are still bearing your sin. And your eyes ought to be downcast. Run to Christ. It's what he came for, to carry our shame and our guilt. Um, and I just want to say, you know, we're, some of us are going to go to, as has been mentioned um, in, Son's, in, in Tom's sermonette, uh, the PLI thing, uh, 20 plus of us are going out there. We get the chance to serve refugees, many of them, all of them perhaps Afghan. Um, I don't think any of them will know Jesus. Some of them might. But um, in that, in that, immersed in that Middle Eastern Muslim culture, um, it's an honor-shame culture still. And, you know, verses 
like this one that I'm about to read, the idea of the fact that not only in our culture, we talk about how Jesus bore our guilt because we're an innocence guilt culture, and he did indeed bear our guilt, but he also bore our shame. That really resonates with a Muslim. Remember that as you're talking and hopefully making connections that will come back here and, and um, foster friendships with these people so, so we can fold them into our regular woof of our regular goings in and comings out. Um, so Hebrews 12, 2 says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, what? Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This really resonates with a, a Muslim. So remember that and remember that for yourself. And if you don't know that, I just want to say, I want you to know that. I want you to know that, Jesus. I want you to know that freedom. The freedom that I saw um, incarnated in this man that I was with in the, uh, in the critical unit in Charlotte, whose head was just lifted through a transaction that had taken place as he believed on Christ, as he looked to Christ. A freedom that I feel through all the things that I've done that are worthy of shame and guilt and punishment. Christ took that for me. And if you come to him, he took it for you too. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your heart of justice and compassion and how Jesus came and showed us your justice and how you absolutely kept the law perfectly, Jesus, in our place and how he also showed us your heart of compassion and how you love to show mercy. And the cross showed us that too. It showed us the consequence of our law breaking, and it showed us that he took that consequence upon himself. And, and uh, through Jesus, we just received infinite, infinite mercy and compassion, unending. And so I thank you for that. I thank you that he was shamed so that our heads could be lifted, so that we could be unashamed and stand fully assured fully accepted in his righteousness. I uh, pray in Jesus' name. Amen.